is a reason over a thousand people die from autoerotic asphyxiation. Sure, they had the same end goal as you did, Bob. But it does not mean they will achieve on that objective. You see, erotic asphyxiation, on the other hand, is a much safer activity. It's a much safer exercise. someone to help regulate your restriction of air. You also have someone around to make sure you don't choke yourself out, or who doesn't choke you out. But if you insist on, you know, self-care, I... I would advise some, I, I have some tips that would make your autoerotic uh, asphyxiation activities kosher. For example, This is the um, first full podcast of the of 2020. Feels exactly the same way as the other podcast felt. Actually, there's more pressure in this podcast for some odd reason. I feel it has to be a singer. I have to knock this one right out of the park. God damn it! I'm so gonna blow it. <laughs> um. This podcast will be in a series. It, it will be in different parts. Because there's just so much content to run through. Um, this, this was built out of observation. Out of my interest in, in, in observing minute, subjective habits and patterns. I am also fascinated with very with, 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 with my new tiny little nudges, subjective nudges that plays a much larger role as it sips into society or as it sips into a mob. These humans uh, we live on a big rock and to make matters worse we gotta share this rock with a lot of other people there are about seven billion of us so seven billion experiences seven billion notions but it's not really seven billion notions is it we do have subjectivity in us but generally we are we are we can be broken up into huge chunks of stronger shared beliefs, customs, and thus behavior patterns. So I find these the, the, the ones I'm gonna speak of fucking fascinating. Um, I mean I I never tire about the I never tire saga of our um, survival. No, no, no. I'm here for a much 
nobler cause, obviously. In my hand, my broken hand, obviously, in my in, in my manner, in my hand, I you know I have mentioned in, in previous podcasts, I it's, it's much easier to remember things you can store and develop some physical manifestation in your hand, in your mind. Now, in one of my, in my cabin, I, you know, I, I, I usually keep um, notions and, and, and thoughts and knowledge, just data in, in folders and files and, and file them in, in, in cabinets. I, I quite enjoy um, digging into them and, um, and going through things that have that I have found very interesting. In my head, I have labeled them placed key observances, certain types of observances and observations built out of this minute subjective take that has larger implications. I call this the, the actual folder, gelastic gravitations propensities, propensities that I find funny, I find comical, I find interesting, really. Um, obviously, I would have some disgust, disgust with, with, with some of them, but um, let's focus more on what I find interesting or funny. Disgust really isn't much, probably just one or two, and I don't feel the need to touch on those. always in a constant state of um, have you ever noticed or um, what's to deal with no I've, I've always I'm always in that state and this is an, it's a very good state it, it allows you keep your observation head constantly on now the folder is the file is actually called you know, gelastic gravitation but the actual folder where I keep several of these files is called Side note, uh, before I proceed, um, I am not here to mock or to criticize and most importantly to trivialize feelings and emotions or experiences. I, I value experiences a great deal. I am truly an experiential passenger. Sure, um, I have a I have a I have a I split my brain into 70-30 just for the sake of argument. 70% is a is mechanical, is a mechanical lizard brain. And then the 30% is just pure subjectivity. I mean, it's not like pure subjectivity, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be as, um, I will play with words a bit, just as irrational, just pure irrationality that I enjoy, irrationality that I study rationality that I take, I, I, I gain from on an emotional level. When you say the lizard part of your my brain just cannot allow that to go away. I really wanna I wanna find out how that subjective mind works, why it works the way it works and how does it affect me? To what extent does it affect me? How many decisions do I make based on that? Are my decisions correct? How would I know they're correct? So that is why I want to unravel. I, I want to take a peek behind the curtains. I I want to, I want to take a look in, inside a designer's handbook. I want to open his notes. I want to see how. work. I want it all. I, I want it all. <laughs> so let's proceed. The first of my observations is a big one. This, this one kills me. And, and what makes it worse, it is vital to us as intelligent, progressive human beings.
beings, as a progressive species, it is vital to our internal calculations, vital to our internal processing. But shockingly, it is something that slips through the cracks so easily. What is it? Understanding. subtraction and multiplication yes so, yeah sure you would use this tool but, but by numbers I'm, I'm speaking more on how we look at variables constants statistics how we look at research data how we look at data how we how we process a whole how we understand a whole and how we understand pieces of what makes a whole. This affects arguments. This do not just affect arguments, this affects the quality of thinking. To better explain this, let's let's start off with a series of examples. I have in countless occasions across this display actually almost daily in my interactions friends with peers with colleagues from all walks of life and varying across different economic hierarchies and social you know, statuses an understanding of, 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 of how to dissect Number one, I I I I I I make um, a, an observation, and I, I say, hey, wealthy people live opulent lifestyles. That is the truth. Now, people usually respond, oh no, I know rich people who live modestly and who are very low key, who do not live in nice houses, who do not wear nice clothes who do not purchase nice or higher quality things or things of, of, of a high monetary value. Now, the reason why I bring this up is the argument here is not that wealthy people do not live open in lifestyles. The argument here is there is no argument here. There are some things that are an overwhelming majority dissected would always always stand correct this is the underlying argument now the issue here is well of course if I was going to tackle this I said well of course some rich people will not live an opulent lifestyle but not the overwhelming majority and for obvious calculatable reasons with more money, more things, we acquire more stuff, we acquire better quality shelter, we better quality food, better quality clothes, and we're able to indulge in habits. All these require more capital require high capital. It comes with the territory of being wealthy. That is the argument here. Another argument. More upper class people use the latest smartphones. More upper class people, more affluent people, more people with means would on average use prefer to use and statistically would choose to use the latest smartphones and the more expensive high-tiered smartphones that is a fact now the argument 
I always find problematic here is there is always the oh no I know many rich people that use Symbian phones or use lower tier grade phones now this is the <laughs> is an issue here and I'm going to explain how this expands into other disciplines now of course sure some would now this isn't the argument. Some of anything would always do something, would always go against a flow, would always go against the current. That is to be expected. These are variables. Now let's look at it deeper. Richer people live, have better lives, have access to better lifestyles, right? In measurable terms comes to the mobile phone why would a richer person or why would a group of richer people choose to buy smartphones smartphones are better tech they're made with better materials they require more research and development to manufacture them they have more features and in society, they are now utilized as some sort of a class status item. This goes for not just mobile phones, it goes for most better products. For you to make better products or higher quality products, or that will require higher monetary value because you will have to utilize materials, not just materials, the machines that process or handles these complex materials. You would also need to hire specialists to use these to create fine products. Specialists ain't cheap. You would also need to house these products ensure these products these products come with an industry behind them within that industry there are very there is a clear-cut division designed to perfect in this product to make it a better faster and very importantly more viable this is called R&D bro don't start me with this I, you know we could go on forever as to what makes a product higher quality or better so why would richer people choose this because richer people have the means to acquire better products humans have an, an, an internal driving mechanism to want better faster quicker just progressive things in everything we do from science to tech to 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 to, to fashion unfortunately these the more technologically advanced products would require more capital to acquire them smartphones in large numbers than poor people now rich people are obviously not the only ones in this category but I'm not speaking about rich billionaires no just more well-off people sure whomever can afford it buys it but the question is how many poor people versus how many well-off people will be able to afford it count literally count look at the numbers even in a poor country the more well-off even in, a, in an extremely poor country the more well-off would always acquire the better higher quality products rich you know rich people actually fund industries I'm not a supporter of you know the thinking of rich is better I'm just being very objective about it 
and you know rich people fuel industries the fact that they purchase these items puts money into those companies will be able to pay scientists more money take more risk do more research and development buy better products and pay people to think of ways to make that product better fact I'll give you another example another gelatic example I say the standard of education in country X, Y, Z is so par and will lead to a creation of lesser performing, you know, leaders, great leaders of industries and global influencers. When you have substandard education in your country, you do not create sound institutions. People usually respond um, to this. Oh no, in poor country XYZ, look, we have some educated, we have educated people. There is one guy over there, Mr. A. Mr. A is the best, or one of the best literary writers in the world. Look at B. B is one of the greatest authors. Look at C. C is one of the greatest painters. So you see, well-off countries are not better or produce better people. This is an extremely dangerous way of thinking. I never understood why, what, how this kind of thinking would, would bear fruits, really. systematically let's let's do that shall we first things first I, I obviously understand the emotional aspect of, of if you are from said XYZ country obviously nobody wants to nobody wants to know I mean nobody wants to admit they are living in a failed society or you know the cultures the norms that they have developed are somewhat inferior or not very will not create great successes because we attach a lot of our egos, a lot of our identity, you know, to our to a country or to a group. But unfortunately, reality is not your friend. And this can also be this argument can be blown out of the water very easily. Let's break this down. So when when people usually come back with that rebuttal, I always ask them, what are the educated numbers in your in, in, in XYZ city or country as compared to the population? That means if you have 100 people in XYZ poor country, how many people are, edu- are educated within those countries? Now compare that to country ABC. The poor countries or countries with subpar, sub- not poor countries, the country with subpar educational standards would most likely have two out of 100 ones with a higher educational standard would have 70 out of 100. 70 and 2 are two massively different numbers. What about the educational amenities? How many actual world-class educational amenities or institutions that can groom minds? How many do you have? And by world-class, I mean truly superior global standards in, in, in comparison to everyone else on Earth. The definition of world-class is really not open to so many interpretations and subjectivity as we might think. There are certain quality design levels one must reach to truly be able to compete with others around the world. Within those schools, how many of the students not just pass, but how many in, 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 in country XYZ, how many students pass well? Now let's look at the, the great minds that um, you know country XYZ would scream out as a as proof of, uh, of their equal standing with let's say a country that invests more into education. This also is, is, is a, it's an extremely weak argument. Now you mentioned we have Miss A as the greatest, you know, literature writer in the world. 
we have Mr. B, the greatest engineer of all time. We have Mr. C, not the greatest, but you know, of world-class standards, repute, achievements, capabilities, and skill. And the question you have to ask yourself before getting excited is, as com- how many of these A's and B's and C's are you providing? How many? How many as compared to your education population?
the quality of your innovation. Education is important because it, 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 it is it, it is a tool. It is a tool that allows you to build skills purposely. Acquire new type of skills like, like, like rational thinking and purposeful, creative and critical thinking. Basically, it helps you solve problems better and more effectively. Education allows you to, to learn raw skills, raw talents. Helps you specialize, helps you achieve great goals. It allows you to expound your horizon, to ask questions you would never have asked because you had no idea that question could have been asked or you had no idea that question even existed. To explore territory just far beyond, beyond your environment. Now, yes, the, there will be some people who are not educated but would achieve great things. The question always is, how many, what are the percentage against the total percentage of people who are not educated at all? That is the argument. We understand the variable, but you do not focus on the variable. You focus on the overall picture. You focus on what causes the most effect. subjective looks you know subjective look and take in life why would we rather think our senses and notions are correct rather than a natural world obviously there's so many answers to this you know the, the general subjective takes on it but I don't want to touch on some of the more general aspect of this I'm, I'm very curious more about the the fact that things we usually hold on to are things that can be rationally explained or they're things that require a lot more layers a lot more unraveling but it seems society doesn't really unravel them as quickly as uh, I mean as deeply as they should it's almost as if we'd rather disprove reality well we would rather disprove reality than assume could be mistaken or just plain wrong a lot of us do that and this displays itself in a multitude of scenarios especially amongst um, people claiming different sort of um, um, supernatural experiences and visions you know premonitions gifts and ghosts or unexplained occurrences now, what always, what always trips me is, when we have an unexplained occurrence, the first thing we want to jump on is on the more fantastic explanation. Have you ever noticed whenever you try to bring a more rational explanation to someone who has claimed he has had a, a, a supernatural explanation, they become extremely hostile. <laughs> I don't know why I find this hilarious. I always find it hilarious because never have a, an attachment to something that is that you cannot argue for truly effectively and then back up with irrefutable evidence I'll give you a couple I imagine this I've heard this in different in, in, in different ways and in different formats um, I was walking or I was laying down I was outside and I saw a light it was like a spirit the light was coming at me and hurled itself at me or the light danced in front of my eyes and I screamed out the name of you know whatever name of uh, really you know religious deity you have and the light went away so so many angles to look at this but you know what with this 
I don't think I need to dissect this one. How about I just point out one or two fellow, you know, one or two points of contentions, and you can try and uh, decipher those ones. First things first, let's look at this. You saw light. So many things to take out of this. There are, there is the your interpretation. There is the actual physiological. There is the light, whatever you think that light was, and then there's the reality, whatever it actually was. How do we how do we find out what the truth is? We try and take out as many irrational and impossible things and look at the, 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 the evidence we have on the ground. We try and provide and think of a lot of different ways in which people do see these things. Your first of all your visuals. How solid were your visuals? What did you actually see? Your memory. Was your memory wrong? Inaccurate? You see, many people believe that a human memory works like a video recorder. You know, the mind records events and then, on cue, plays them back exactly as it went down. But that is not reality. Contrary, actually, psychologists and scientists have found out that memories are more reconstructed rather than played back each time we recall them. Plus, during the reconstruction phase, you can one can add different external Different external can pollute your memory by by adding different external things that never happened, and you would accept during your reconstruction process. Include that into your memories, and you would, you would swear, you would literally swear on your kids that you saw that thing. This has been proven so 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 many times. The third one, I mean, let's look at the light. impression we know what the light was what kind of light was it was it shimmering did you feel the heat of the light perhaps you're just wrong another one another way I another place uh, another series of examples I, I, I want to touch on that is, that is just very explanatory is dreams. We place so much emphasis on our dreams. I cannot recollect how many friends of mine have come to me and told me, Michael, guess what? I had a dream that ABCD died and guess and they died in real life. Or I had a dream that I passed an exam. I had a dream that that I was supposed to get something big and then I got it. There you go. It's got to be something mysterious. It's got to be an answer to my prayer. I am looking and I am foretelling the future. So many angles to this. So many. You know what? I'm going to break the dream, the dream, the dream one into two. Let's. Dreams are actually a, a serious phenomenon that. Um, still have and still is commanding uh, the time and interest of society and scientists and experts now obviously the any you know within any scientific discipline and anytime there is a, a question that is not yet been answered don't do not assume what the answer is we are still working on it not every question would, would produce an easy answer and producing answers for questions is a very hard thing but when it comes to dreams, we have some uh, theories, well-tested theories, and there's some hypotheses, but I'm not going to mention those, but more very you know, soundly tested theories backed by, by actual scientific data. But I won't call this definitive, but this, um, this sheds a lot of light into what happens in dreams. Some of them are definitive, in, not definitive completely, but definitive in terms of, um, in terms of how strong the data is on this.
So let's split that into two. We'll call two different, I'll, I'll give you two different scenarios and then explain the scenarios. The first scenario happens, I mean, so many times. This is when you have a dream about something that is going to happen. And then due to your actions, it happens. It's called post-dream. So dreams may include events that a person has not necessarily thought about whilst they were awake, right? Now, after dreaming of something such as, uh, you know, as I mentioned, passing a test, uh, getting a business deal, achieving an objective, the dreamer's behavior might change when that person wakes up. So in the, in the case of a student, dreaming you're going to pass or fail, the student wakes up, studies much more, much less for the test after that dream. Because the dreamer considers the dream a reflection of a very likely outcome. Do you understand that? But the power of dreams in, in this case only comes true because the dreamer is partially controlling or fully controlling some aspects based on what he dreamt. That is one. Now let's let's let's, let's make this much harder. How about dreams where that come true without zero intervention? No post-dream action that could have been controlled by the dreamer or anybody else who knew what the content of the dream was. Now, evidence points to the idea that dreams, this is very important, evidence points to the idea that that dreams can also be a synthesis for a person's conscious and subconscious memory. synthesis of your conscious and subconscious memories. Now, in your subconscious and your conscious memories, these are where you store data, information, things that you stimuli, basically. A lot in your subconscious, there are a lot of things that you've taken in unaware. You've seen some body language, some cues, you've heard something, off heard something, and you've made, you know, your mind can make quick calculations just based on your experiences, your, your actual skill. Then you go to sleep, right? synthesis of and then you you synthesize real clues real things you've seen from your subconscious from your consciousness it makes it very easy to accurately anticipate the probability of some outcomes in your real life this theory also suggests that obvious clues very obvious clues may not be considered um, important until all of the facts are pulled and sometimes this occurs during sleep. Okay. This elastic gravitation I fucking enjoy. <laughs> this is hilarious. No, this is this is both hilarious and problematic. This is the portrayal of good and bad people in, um, you know, in, in movies, especially very highly cultural society movies. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk specifically about movie, uh, Nollywood movies, Bollywood movies, Lollywood movies, um, Arabic movies. These are hilarious for obvious reasons, um, <laughs> but. You know, the good man, in, in, if you notice when you watch all these movies, right, the good guy or the good girl is always a predictable dunce of a character. And, and, and that character is always written with, with as much, with as little complexity as possible. The goodness, or whatever they call goodness, is more, is more aesthetic. This is more of the aesthetic community good rather than goodness with depth in it. For example, if you look at movies, they, they also conflate you know, several 
normal characteristics, you know, wash the dishes, do the chores, and, you know, they portray this as the ultimate tasks, especially in Hollywood and Bollywood, is you will pray, guys that pray a lot, go to church, um, you know, uh, women that do not wear short skirts, you know, very funny, aesthetic things that we consider good but uh, I, I always I, you know the hero is always a dumbass he never challenges authority he is not complex now that might be hilarious but I, I also find it problematic because the truth is good people are very complex people goodness when when seen through any biased lenses is, 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 is partial lenses is not really good. Those are just habits. Things we do because we're trying to appease a group, a collective, a deity, a belief system. Good is not how well you adhere to, to you know, honestly to just a cultural practice or a way of life. Good deeds are, good acts are these are irreproachable. Good people, you know, do a lot of good things altruistically. It has an altruistic element to it. Not all the time. Sometimes, you know, there, there are times you can do genuine good deeds but have some ulterior, some selfish motives. Those are okay. What matters is the, the deeds are done for altruistic the primary end goal of, of, of those deeds is to do something that would positively impact a thing, a person, a process, or a system outside of the, the confines of, of, of a very limited appeasement of one's, you know, feelings, of one's notions. I believe how we portray good really affects children and the evolution of, of children. You can always tell in societies that are extremely cultural, goodness isn't very complex. It really isn't the case. Take yourself, for example, you listener. You're a complex person. Sometimes you do some things that are not 100% selfless you might get into a fight with your parents you might not want to wash the dishes you might not enjoy doing tasks um, manual tasks at home I'm not saying those are good things but those do not make you a bad person you can still be a very good person the, the, the best humans I've met the best humans not just me the best humans I've come across people I've, I've read about they seem to have complexity talking about guys who sacrifice themselves for people selflessly, sacrifice yourself for a homeless person, powerful good deed, who is genuinely kind to people who can't do anything for them, who does good things, who does deeds that positively impact people. These are usually complex people. We gotta kill off this doltish and uh, naive outlook and presentation of goodness. It's weak. This Jurassic one is pretty damn good. This I actually like. This this one is being used, like overused, my god, in real life, in art, from movies to political pundits. My god, this one has been overabused. I haven't met an asshole who hasn't used this one ever. Seriously. This comes especially this comes especially handy in the defense of certain types of uh, characters. You know, delusional mass murderers, you know, world leaders and politicians. <laughs> Eastern, uh, you know, I find it interestingly enough. It, it, I, I still don't understand why we use this as a defense. It's very odd. This is the, hey, I love my family. I love my children. I'm a nice person. <laughs> I've always found that fascinating. People that use love of children or love of spouse. As, a, as proof of their goodness. I always find this very fascinating. You see it a lot, in, especially in the news. Well, John is a good family man. 
he wouldn't say something like that. And then five seconds later, we find a John did say something like that. That is a very odd defense. <laughs> loving your, listen, loving your family is not, it, 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 let me, first of all, <laughs> Hitler loved Eva Brown. Crazy people, cruel people can love. That's, we have enough evidence that loving your children or loving a king is, <laughs> is no reason to assume goodness. There, there is no correlation there. I am sure Leopold II of Belgium loved Louis Marie of Orleans, loved their four children. But know what happened? Leopold massacred over 10 million people for sport. And that was just in one country. But I'm sure he loved his wife and his children. I'm still not sure how that helps matters. People act like, you know, when you love your child or you love your brother, you love your family, that's that's some kind of a tick. It would be nice, I mean, yes, sure, if some, uh, if you meet a human that has zero love for any, for any creature, that would be, you know, that shit would be scary. You better call 911 and leave in jail. <laughs> but love really isn't the domain of good people. Love is, is there, it's easily accessible. Why? It is biochemistry, basically. Love is biochemistry doing its thing. Wanna know a little about love? Yeah, let me ruin this for you. Sure, we feel love very deeply. It feels nice. It feels good. But uh, I, listen, I am not speaking on my authority on this. We, we, we actually do have neuroscientists who work on this. You know, let them stress. But, you know, the argument is backed by actual scientific data and a sound, rational foundation. Um, it's about love. So, you know, romantic love, self-love, family love, friendship, and, and all that. There's a part of your brain called the hypothalamus. Yeah? Hypothalamus releases hormones and neurotransmitters. Not just hypothalamus, different parts of your brain, but we're going to focus on this one. This is the part of the brain that, that, that releases testosterones and estrogens. something called dopamine high levels of dopamine and 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 other hormones that is why we always seek the company of people who attract us and people who who we want to have sex with because anytime you're around them this causes your brain that part of your brain to release these hormones they are released when we do things that make us feel good to us time you guys be wanting to start just blame biology even when you feel giddy you know exhilarated euphoric you know you're in love you're attracted to somebody even a loss of appetite you know mood swings can't sleep that shit kills you i know i thought it was magic nope dopamine dopamine you know it affects the release of of, 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 of a, actually a neurotransmitter called serotonin serotonin regulates mood and appetite insomnia too yep also chemical for that for real now the the other type of love you know the ones that we really love the you know Friendship, family, social interactions. There, there are two key hormones actually that gets released anytime a mother actually is with her child. This one explains that special mother, child, father, daughter, you know, relationship we have. It's called oxytocin and uh, vasopressin. Oxytocin is actually called the cuddle hormone. No bullshit. I promise you it's actually called that the chief doctor is probably some guy named chad 
and um, he has ruined our lives. But seriously, um, like dopamine, um, oxytocin is produced by the hypothalamus and released in large quantities during three key vital activities. Sex, during orgasms, during breastfeeding, and obviously, and during childbirth. I know, this looks like a weird assortment. <clears throat> this looks like a weird assortment of activities and, you know, I mean, I can vouch for the first one. That, that feels good. Breastfeeding, I don't know. Childbirth, yeah. Stay away from that one. That one looks painful. But if you notice, all these three things are actually very important things. If you look deeply in them, sexual orgasms, breastfeeding, and giving birth. There's a common factor in all these events. These are the precursors to bonding. You know, when when you bond with people. It acts like, you know... so, So that bonding, that feel... That feel that 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 is the oxytocin and the first person. It acts like a gluing agent, driving that need to, to, to bond. You feed your you breastfeed your baby. Your brain releases these chemicals. It it increases your need to want to bond with that baby. That's why it gets released after childbirth, when the baby is is essentially in need and and dependent on a host for nourishment and survival. Even women go, that give birth during uh, birth by cesarean section without going through labor, or women that opt out of uh, breastfeeding, they still form very strong emotional bonds. Grandparents, uh, adopt, you know, ad- ad- adoptive parents, they form lifelong bonds with their parents, I mean, with, with their children. And the preliminary evidence suggests that just simply being in the presence of, a, of an infant releases oxytocin in adults. Ba- basically, the baby forces you to love it. This is an actual reality. I mean, don't get me wrong, I, I love love. Uh, I love the fact that it is psychosomatic in its design. I, I, I respect its, uh, its commanding effect. said and done, it is all nothing but basic biology. I'm going to touch on my last one, let me save you guys the trouble of being basked in my presence is, is overwhelming. I, this I find very odd. This is a very simple, direct one. I find it odd when people do not freak out about, freak out enough about how insane this shit is. Life, consciousness, existence, and really want to delve into it. I'm not talking about just putting a blanket statement on it. Oh, it was a gift from the gods. No, but really look at it. I find it, life is a fucking oddity. Really, really it is. I mean, the universe, what, 13.8 billion? years old, our planet formed just 4.5 billion years ago, first humans 66 million years ago, homo sapiens 200,000 years ago. Can you imagine the probabilistic odds? Not just the probabilistic odds for us existing, we, we can actually, we can map it out in maths, there is there, there are strong odds for, for not just us, for other life forms due to the fact that the universe is expanding, it, it is infinite, so, but it's... How life works, life works in, in, in a series of mistakes and chances and, you know, it's, I find, I, I find, I find it all fascinating. What the fuck is life? With invention of, um, methodologies and systems, we've been able to create tools and even schools of thought to help make sense of all this. Yeah, it's all 
so it's also fucking funny.